Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Hey there, Bible Center family. Welcome back. It's great to have you here. Thank you for those of you who are joining us on TV, online, or in person. It's so great uh, to have you here. I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor. If we haven't yet had the chance to meet, I look forward to that opportunity. We like to say that we are a family expecting guests. And so if you're a guest with us uh, today on this broadcast, on this live stream, we want you to know uh, that we want you to leave as a friend. Let us know how we can help you get connected. Our online pastor, Pastor Matt Garrison, uh, would love to do that. Let me invite you to take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew 14, verses 22 and 23. We're in the middle of a nine-week series entitled Reset, looking at the various ways that God wants to reset our lives this summer. And today is the fourth message in that series. And so if you missed any of the previous three messages, let me invite you to go back and check those out. The best place to get all of our messages is on the app. If you haven't yet downloaded the Bible Center app, feel free to do that. It's free wherever you get your apps. And on that uh, app, you'll find a way to download all the sermon notes. Uh, Here at Bible Center, we have a long history of desiring to go deep uh, in God's Word, to study deeply the Word of God. And so now, almost weekly, there's at least five pages of sermon notes for you to follow along, uh, go down some different rabbit holes, check out some references and cross-references. I think it'll be a help uh, to your Bible study. I want to begin today by introducing you to a space in Minneapolis, Minnesota uh, that was once dubbed the quietest place on earth uh, by Guinness's World Records. The company that created this space is Orfield Laboratories, and the lab is called an an anechoic chamber, meaning there is no echo in the room. The room is built in such a way that it absorbs 99.99% of sound. Now, a typical quiet bedroom at night with the sounds of maybe the air conditioner or the sounds of the bugs outside or the crickets outside is about 30 decibels. But this particular chamber measures at negative nine decibels. It's made of three foot thick fiberglass wedges, double walls of insulated steel, and a foot thick of concrete. NASA rinse out the room to train their astronauts. Whirlpool uses the room to check the volume of their various washing machine models. Harley-Davidson uses it to make their motorcycles quieter. Here's the CEO of the company, Stephen Orfield. He created the Soundproof Lab with his team. And he says it's so quiet that when you go inside, you can actually hear the artificial valve in his heart tick. The sounds of silence actually become unnerving, though, he says, for most people, as the record stay in this room to date is still 45 minutes. In fact, in most cases, just a fraction of that time, people get creeped out by the eerie sounds that they hear in their body, and they hit the eject button. They leave the room. And so I want to ask you today, if you had the opportunity to go to this room, would you do that? If you had the opportunity. Now, if you have small kids at home, no doubt you're probably saying, yes, I would love to spend about a week in that room with no noise. 
If you're like us and you have some teenagers at home, you're probably saying the same thing. However, there's a reason that no one has been able to stay in that room for more than 45 minutes. There's something in us, according to psychologists, that's scared to death of solitude, silence, rest, and retreat. And so I'll ask you, have you ever found yourself maybe craving a vacation or craving some silence or craving some solitude? You're craving a time away by yourself, but when you finally get that time, it's freaked you out when it finally arrives Maybe you've tried to read your Bible and pray, and as soon as you sit down, your mind scurries in a thousand different directions. You try to take a day off to go on vacation, and all you can think about is work. Maybe you lay your head on your pillow at night to sleep, but your mind races and your heart aches with anxiety. This just isn't a problem for some people or a problem for professional people or really important people. This is a problem for everybody. There are sixth graders in our community who wake up at 5 a.m. to go to swim practice. They go to school all day during the school year. They're rushed to piano lessons after school, and then they come home at night to work on their homework until late into the evening, long after dark, to keep up with the Ivy League expectations of their parents. And we wonder why there's this desire, this craving to come apart. I see college students who have, a, they have an IV pumping Red Bull into their bloodstream. They take honors classes and they volunteer at soup kitchens to beef up their resume. They work out twice a day. They go to all the social functions because they want to avoid the stigma of being single. And all this pressure and anxiety is mounting up in their souls at such a young age. I see young couples in our church with dual incomes and no kids, and they're rising stars at work, which is good. Maybe they're putting in 50 to 60 hours a week at work. And since they have no children, they feel that it's their duty to do everything. They feel it's their duty to lead a small group and serve on Sundays and volunteer with church committees and participate in neighborhood outreaches. But they're already exhausted, and they even feel guilty about their exhaustion. I've had a couple tell me that they believe that one day life will eventually slow down when they have kids. Now, we know that's not true, but that's the perception that we have. I see new mothers who are bitter with their sudden life change. Sleep is a joke and nobody is laughing. Quiet reflection and energizing time with friends seems to be a distant memory. I see 50-year-old businessmen who can't keep up with the next generation. Uh, They see younger men willing to work twice as long for half as much, threatening their livelihoods and their identities. They work every waking hour despite their failing body, despite the doctor's advice who, who warns them that if they don't slow down, they're going to have a heart attack. Now, I wish I could say this is a non-Christian, cultural, worldly thing. But unfortunately, it is all too common even in the church, even for God's people, even for Christians. If we've learned anything in this last year and a half, we've learned that we as God's people are susceptible to some of the same temptations that unbelievers are susceptible to. We can feel the temptation of cynicism and negative self-talk and soul fatigue and disillusionment of goals and dreams 
impatience with others, relational conflict, failing to meet commitments, waking up more tired than when we went to bed, constantly dreaming of a different life, the dread of going to work every day. And so if we step back for a moment, one of the things I think would be helpful for us to consider is what kind of message are we sending to our community What message are we sending to our neighbors? What message are we sending to our children if we live this kind of frenetic life? If we live this hurried, busy life without ever taking time to enjoy life? Could it be that we're communicating that we really don't trust God? That we really don't know how to stop working? Or that we really don't know how to enjoy life? I believe there is a better way. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced Jesus is calling us into a better way. And and I believe the next few minutes are going to be worth the price of your attention. The Bible, God's Word, actually speaks to this issue. And it actually speaks to this issue quite a lot. In the next few minutes, we're going to read a couple of verses about Jesus' life. I'm going to give you one big idea, and then I'm going to close with several suggestions on how to live this out. Let's go ahead and dive into our text. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now that's in the NIV, the New International Version. Let's look at it in another version. Let's look at at the King James Version. In the King James, those same verses translated this way. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go before him unto the other side. While he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart. Let's remember that word. Apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Jesus, after a busy day of ministry, went apart. He got himself apart from the crowds to spend time with God the Father. Here's today's big idea. This is what I want us to remember. Here it is. If we don't come apart, we will come apart. If we don't come apart, we will come apart This true story from the life of Jesus comes right after the time he had fed the multitudes uh, with a little boy's lunchable. He took five loaves and two fish and fed thousands. After teaching and doing this phenomenal miracle, Jesus retreats and he climbs a mountain so he can pray. He was likely exhausted from the day's events, yet he knew that the health of his soul was more important than anything else. Picture Jesus slowly, methodically plodding up the mountain, gazing out across the water and breathing in the salty air of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, deep in his heart, trusted God the Father. And so because of that trust, he was willing to retreat from his work for a a time. He took time to simply enjoy the presence of his Father. Was there work to do? Sure there was work to do. Could Jesus have been doing more miracles or teaching more lessons? Sure he could have. But he knew at that time the best thing for him to do was to retreat. 
Jesus actually prioritizes retreat over and over again in the Gospels. In the little book of Mark alone, just the little 16 chapters, Jesus is recorded as having retreated nine times. After his baptism, he disappeared into the desert for 40 days. Jesus withdrew to mourn the death of John the Baptist. Mark and Luke both describe Jesus as rising early to find a desolate place alone. And on the night before his crucifixion, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane with his 12 disciples, but he even leaves them and goes on a little further off by himself to be with God the Father. Now this pattern of retreat doesn't mark Jesus as some kind of a special case, and it's not just uh, indicative of his divinity. Instead, it's a perfect expression of Jesus' humanity. A body has limited resources, and what we do each day drains those resources. Our physical energy drains, as does our psychological energy, our capacity for empathy, and even our capacity to make decisions. Jesus incarnate and embodied experienced these limitations. Just as Jesus needed food and oxygen and sleep, he also needed retreat. And so that brings us back to the big idea today. If we don't come apart, we will come apart. Today's topic is about retreat. And the Oxford Dictionary defines retreat in these ways. Moving back or withdrawing to a quiet and secluded place where one can rest, relax, pray, or meditate. In the biblical sense, the word retreat means to make space for life with God alone. It's doing what God invites us to do in Psalm 46.10 where he says, Be still and know that I am God. Now in the Old Testament, God instructed the people of Israel, the children of Israel, his chosen people. He instructed them when they came out of Egypt to set aside one day a week for rest. That was called a Sabbath and we'll look at that a little bit further in a minute. But you see, in ancient Egypt, the Egyptians, many of them saw the Israelites as just commodities for productivity. They were slaves in Egypt. They were good for nothing more than to do a job. But as they came out of Egypt and eventually came to Mount Sinai, God reminded them that they were more than just commodities. They weren't commodities at all. They were his children, his chosen children, his people, his human beings. They were created by God. They had been redeemed out of Egypt by God. And this is important for you and me to remember today as well. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not a commodity. You are not just someone who is only good for what you can produce. You're not only created by God, but you have been redeemed by God. You don't have to do more, sell more, control more, score more, or know more for God to love you. Your kids don't have to be more beautiful, more athletic, more involved, or more awarded for God to love you. God's love for you is based on Jesus Christ, the merits of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And because of your faith in Christ, you can experience the love, the same love that God the Father has for Jesus He also has for you. 
I like what Blaise Pascal said years ago. He said this, All our miseries derive from not being able, think of this, to sit in a quiet room alone with God. I like to think of it somewhat like a, a furnace, somewhat like a fireplace. At my dad's farm, he has 65 acres in Clay County. And at my dad's farm, at this, uh, there's a big wood stove right in the middle of the living room. Now, in the farm, you, the farmhouse, in the wintertime, it can be quite cold outside. But if you get a roaring fire in the stove, it's almost unbearable. You have to wear a t-shirt and shorts. It's so hot. But there's one thing we do if we're going up to, there, up to Clay County to go hunting. One of the things we do is we make sure that in the winter we don't leave the door open. Because if you leave the door open, it allows the heat to leave and eventually the room to cool. In the same way, there are times to open the door of your life to share and to invite others in. It's good for us to communicate and to open up our lives to others, to tell them what we've learned, to share what we've experienced. But according to the patterns of life, that should be the exception and not the rule. Just like there are times to open the door to my dad's cabin. There's times to do that, but you don't leave the door open because all the heat will eventually leave. In a world of constant display, think of this. Many of us have never closed the door to our lives at all. Every experience is something we feel like we need to share or broadcast, even on social media. And I feel the same temptation you do. Every moment of silence, though, that we have is somehow interrupted by the temptation for more noise. We feel like we need to be tweeting something. We feel like we need to be reading something, listening to something. Yet we long for more depth and more intimacy with God, but we don't realize that how our busyness is actually draining the very vitality from our souls. And so that's why I'm so adamant about our big idea today. If we don't come apart, we will come apart. Retreat, rest, Getting away like Jesus did is our opportunity to say to God, I trust you with my whole life. Retreat is an opportunity to acknowledge we have limitations, but God doesn't. Retreat is our opportunity to ground our hope in who God is rather than what we do. Retreat is our opportunity to proclaim with our lives that God is the good, wise, gracious, and all-powerful creator and sustainer of all, and we are not. The philosopher Hannah Ardent, she wrote this, A life spent entirely in public, in the presence of others, becomes, as we would say, shallow. While it retains its visibility, it loses the quality of rising into sight from some darker ground which must remain hidden if it is not to lose its depth in a very real, non-subjective sense. Now, Hannah wrote that in 1958, a few years before social media, a few years before the life that we experience through technology. And so I just want to encourage you. I'm on the journey with you. I'm a fellow traveler. But if we don't come apart, 
we will come apart. We're not made for this life that we're supposed to live where all the world is a stage. Our souls can't handle the pressure. We were never made for this. And so it's so important that we take time apart. We take time to retreat and get alone with God regularly. Now, I want to offer several suggestions. You may think of some different suggestions, different ways uh, to fulfill this. And so I'm going to share with you a number of suggestions. You can write these down. There's actually five. The first suggestion is this. Develop rhythms of daily retreat. Develop rhythms of daily retreat. Do you have a quiet time each day with God? Do you have quiet time any time in your day where you can be alone with your thoughts, but you can also be with God for a few minutes in prayer and actually read His Word for your soul? If you're like me, as soon as I sit down, as soon as I sit down, maybe as soon as you sit down to have that time with God, the cymbals and the bells and the whistles and the gongs start to echo in my soul. I begin to think things like, well, I probably should have done this, or I forgot to do that, or I wish I had done this. What if this happens, or what if this doesn't happen? And you add to this all the beeps and notifications and and tweets and reminders and so forth. And so this summer, what if you tried this? Here's a few ideas. What if you tried muting your phone notifications as much as possible? What if you tried muting your phone notifications, or at least during the times when you're trying to get alone with the Lord, retreat with the Lord, or maybe retreat with friends and family? You say, but man, I can't turn off my notifications. I recognize there are instances, maybe because of a particular type of job where you absolutely can't, but for most of us, there are at least seasons when we can Maybe you have set times this summer to check your email, your your phone, your text messages, and your social media. Instead of always being on call 24-7, maybe you put your phone on silent at night. Or if you have multiple phones in the house, maybe there's just one number that people know, close family and friends, where they can reach you in an emergency. Here recently, my wife has been having us put our phones away from the dinner table when our family of five, we sit down to eat. And inevitably, we all feel tempted to reach for our phone at some point during the conversation, me included. And we get that look that only a mama can give. Maybe this summer you try going for a walk while reading or listening to a podcast or, 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 or a book on Audible. Or maybe you, you go on a walk listening to your favorite music. When would be the best time during your day to spend some time alone with the Lord? It might be different for you than it is for me, but whenever it is, I encourage you to do that. Carve out that time every day for a daily retreat. Number two, develop rhythms of weekly retreat. Develop rhythms of weekly retreat. In the Old Testament, the standard for Sabbath was Saturday. Saturday was the Sabbath We see this even in the Ten Commandments, to keep the Sabbath. But we as New Testament Christians, we live under the New Covenant. There were actually 616 laws, 613 laws in the Old Testament. And the Old Covenant, particularly in the Mosaic Covenant, 
we live under the new covenant. And so it's not that everything in the Old Testament is somehow, uh, um, somehow no longer applies to us. It all, according to the book of Romans, points us to God and tells us much about God. But there are many laws that didn't get transferred from the Old Testament over to the New Testament. And Saturday, as the Sabbath, is one of those laws that did not get transferred. So there's nowhere in the New Testament that says you have to take Saturday off. Or for that matter, sometimes people get it confused with Sunday. And they say that, well, Sunday is the Sabbath. Actually, in the New Testament, Jesus is now the Sabbath. But still in the New Testament, the principle of rest is found from cover to cover. God encourages us. If it was so important in the Old Testament to follow the pattern of creation by taking a day off, we still live in God's creation. And so how much more important is it in our busy lives to still at least take a day off a week? Whatever your day off happens to be, try to avoid activities that are similar to your occupation. Try to avoid anything that creates anxiety, anything that involves planning or paying bills or definitely not doing taxes. Try to avoid anything that's engaging with difficult people, if at all possible. Even religious activity. Be very, very careful if Sunday is your only day off. Make sure that you're very, very careful that it doesn't turn into another work day uh, at your church or at our church. There are many other days of the week and evenings in the week when you can use your spiritual gift. Just make sure that you have at least a day a week to retreat. Try instead to think of a day a week like a snow day for grown-ups. I like to call a, a day off a snow day for grown-ups. It's not something we have to do as much as it's something we get to do. Don't just take a day off to rest when you have nothing to do. But instead, take a day off each week to rest because you'll never be done. There will always be more work to do. And that's the very reason God invites us to take a day off. Typically, my day off each week is usually Friday. But depending on funerals and, and different schedules or weddings, sometimes I, I take off Saturdays and work Fridays and vice versa. It just, it just kind of depends. But I really am trying. You can pray for me with this. I am trying to take that day, like my snow day for grown-ups. Now, sometimes I go camping with my son. Sometimes I go kayaking with one of my daughters. Sometimes I, I often just love to go on long walks with my wife. I go on a date with my wife. Sometimes I just sit and read. Sometimes it's going for a long walk with my dogs. Sometimes it's playing hours of Minecraft or hours of Fortnite or watching hours of Netflix. But I found that that day a week rejuvenizes my soul. On that day, I must confess, I have no Mount Sinai thunder. I don't see any Damascus Road illuminations. I don't see any Island of Patmos visions, but it's just a day for not doing anything. It's a day for being a human being, not a human doing. Number three, let me encourage you to develop rhythms of quarterly rest. Rhythms of quarterly rest. In the Old Testament, we see festivals about six times per year. 
Uh, Some of the larger festivals happen four times a year, and there's a couple other small ones. When God's people were commanded to enjoy festivities like this throughout the year, there were multiple purposes of God. God invited them to enjoy good food and, and dancing and good music and to enjoy one another and to celebrate one another's company and to celebrate the goodness of their God. One of our mentors actually encouraged Sarah and me. We were married 21 years ago and a few days back we celebrated our 21st anniversary. One of our mentors encouraged us every year to look at the calendar and divide up the calendar into quarters. January, February, March, April, May, June, and so forth. And to pick a quarter, each a day, at least a quarter, to get away and retreat. Now, usually we take a big summer vacation with the kids. The kids are out of school. And so we did our summer vacation in June this year. And so that was for uh, April, May, and June. Our quarter, we had some time away. But now we're in July, August, and September. And so sometime in August and September, we're going to try to get away for a night. Hopefully we can get away for a night with the kids before our oldest goes off to college. But it's just good sometimes, whether it be you alone, whether it be you with your spouse, you with your friends, you with your entire family, whatever it is, retreat is good for the soul. Number four, develop rhythms of yearly retreat. Develop rhythms of yearly retreat. We call these, again, vacations. Vacations produce a better perspective on our life and on our work. Vacations refresh our thought patterns. They renew our relationships with loved ones and friends. And above all, relationships allow us to do nothing. Now, I grew up here in the famous, I believe it's Benjamin Franklin quote, that an idle mind is the devil's workshop. And I hear that, that's a good quote. But the older I get, I'm finding that there are some very busy minds that can also be the devil's workshop. Actually, any mind that's not centered on Christ. And so being busy, running at this crazy pace, doesn't somehow necessitate or make it so that your mind somehow is thinking good thoughts. Because people who are crazy busy can be just as guilty of bad thoughts as someone who is idle. But I like what Tim Kreider says in his book, The Busy Trap. He says this, Idleness is not just a vacation, an indulgence, or a vice. It is as indispensable to the brain as vitamin D is to the body. And deprived of it, we will suffer mental affliction as disfiguring as rickets. Some of the older folks in our church have been so kind to tell me that lessons they've learned over the years. They've said that if they don't make time to get away, their body will make sure they have time to get away. In other words, they'll get sick. And so I want to encourage you, take time for yearly retreats. When is the last time you turned off your phone? When is the last time you turned off your social media? Could you do that for one week a year? Again, I realize there's extreme cases where someone can't, but I want to encourage you, believe God enough. Just try it. Try trusting God enough. It's almost fasting in a different way to believe that the Lord can give you that kind of retreat. Number five, and lastly, don't be afraid to take seasonal retreats as needed. 
Don't be afraid to take seasonal retreats as needed. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says there is a time for everything. In chapter 3, he says there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to laugh and a time to cry. In chapter 3 alone, in the first eight verses, he identifies 28 different seasons of life. Now, that was written 3,000 years ago, but it's still the Word of God. But those seasons, those 28 seasons, may look different for me than they do for you. But it's important for us to acknowledge the seasons that we're in. Some of the wisest people I know in our church and in my life are people who have taught me to recognize the seasons. Maybe you're younger, you're in the season of middle school or high school or college. Maybe you're in the season of career or the season of, of dating or the season of marriage or the season of small children. And some of these seasons can seem like a long, long time. But when we look back, they're just seasons. Maybe you're in the season of building your career. Maybe you're in the season of midlife. Maybe you're in the season of a, kind of on the twilight of your career, kind of pre-retirement season. Maybe you're in retirement. Maybe you've just lost a loved one, a family member, or a friend. Whatever season that you're in, I want to give you permission. I want to encourage you actually for your, to give yourself permission to be easy on yourself. Recognize that you're not superhuman. You're not superman. You might need to take a, a week or a few weeks, and maybe you can't leave your job that long, but maybe you slow down with some other areas of life just as you go through a particular, especially a difficult season to be mindful of what God is calling you to do and what you should be doing for the Lord. If we don't come apart, unfortunately, we will come apart in closing, I want to draw your attention to Jesus of Nazareth, who 2,000 years ago, this is what I picture, this picture, I picture Jesus the night before he's crucified. I love this picture because so many of us have been in this same posture, maybe not on the side of a rock in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we've been in this same posture by our beds. And the Bible says in the Gospels that Jesus, the night before he's crucified, prayed agonized as if it were great drops of blood, Jesus begged the Father not to do what was about to happen the next day. There's a lot in that prayer that I don't understand, but Jesus in his humanity was praying, Lord, may this cup of suffering pass from me. But God the Father had him go through it anyway. Jesus suffered ultimate exhaustion so that we could experience everlasting life. He took our death to give us new birth. He took our soul weariness to give us spiritual health. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I invite you to do that today. But Christian, if you've already trusted Jesus, you believe that he died for your sins, was buried and rose again, I want to encourage you to believe he can transform your life. You can trust him enough to take some time to retreat. You say, Matt, why is it so important to do that? Again, our big idea. It's important to do that simply because if we don't come apart, we will come apart. 
For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media.